I'm Thani Nandini, and this is episode five of the Mala podcast, where extraordinary women retell their stories of survival and reimagine them as sense. I'm a novelist and perfumer living in Brooklyn, New York, and my independent beauty and fragrance house, High Wildflower, sponsors this podcast. We're here to unravel the notion of a bad woman, the Spanish definition of Mala, also known as a garland of flowers in Sanskrit, and in this podcast, memory as living art. All of the perfumes and limited edition tote bag are available at malapodcast.com. The season centers on a house of formerly incarcerated women in Flushing, Queens. In this final harrowing episode of season one, our guest is Claude. We jump right into perfume talk, so I hit record in mid-conversation. Like her best friend and roommate, Nikki, her dresser is covered in about 30 perfumes, and Claude wears a different perfume for the time of day, her mood at any given moment. They're designer and celebrity perfumes like Perry Ellis to Katy Perry. And I notice a bottle of Elizabeth Taylor's White Diamonds, the same perfume gifted to me by my abusive boyfriend in high school. Scents lock themselves into our memory, and just sniffing that perfume reminds me of loving a violent young man. Perfume is a chance for ascension of social class, of our material circumstance. After being denied perfume for decades of her life, Claude inundates every new experience with the fragrance. When her mother passed away, Claude inherited her original perfume blends, compositions her mother created and stored in amber apothecary bottles. Claude decants these perfumes into small, gorgeous Egyptian glass bottles and chic black and gold atomizers. I smell one of her mother's perfumes, a narcotic, night-blooming jasmine. When it comes to Western notions of so-called classic perfumery, or Western notions of anything really, like literature, art, or music, or food, expertise is a Eurocentric, white male-dominated realm. Her mother's perfumes, hidden away, obscure, and discovered by her daughter after her death, tell us so much about how women's work and creative practice have been unseen, untold throughout history. Perfumery is an ancient practice, and for Claude's mother, it was another extension of her lifelong devotion to voodoo. Claude reminds us, just because a woman is released from prison does not mean that she is free. You have a curfew of 9 p.m. You're not allowed to drink alcohol or smoke pot for medical reasons. You have to take drug tests and report to a probation officer. You're not allowed to leave the state of New York. You can't vote. This home of women we've met this season live in a state of transition between the inside and outside. Yes, they've made a beautiful home, but it's impermanent. They are wayfarers who will be setting out again on a new part of their journey when it's time. For Claude, true freedom will come when she can leave the city to start a new life with her fiancé. So I want her perfume to exude this freedom. It's bright and tropical, inspired by her youth, her Haitian heritage, a perfume as a getaway. The top sparkles with juicy citrus notes of white and pink grapefruit and bergamot in homage to her father's cologne. For the heart, I go full-on tropics, gardenia cord, and fatty coconut milk, and the base is an amber musk, reminiscent of sacred incense, Voodoo and her mother, where Claude's life began. My name is Claude Millery, and I was born in St. Luke's Hospital in Manhattan, New York. I was born in 1972. I grew up in Queens all my life, always in a house. At one point, we lived in a two family house, but we always lived in a house growing up. I grew up with both parents, my mom and my dad. They were born in Haiti. And I'm the youngest of four girls. This was their second marriage. So with my mom and my dad together, they just had me. So growing up as the last child, in a way, in a lot of ways, I was 
I guess, spoiled being the baby. But as I got older, a lot of responsibilities were placed on my shoulders. A lot of the times I don't know what I'm thinking about. I don't know what my face looks like. Like I could be lost in thought and my facial expression is is showing what I'm thinking about. And people tend to take that personal. And it's, you know, it's not personal for anybody. I could just be thinking about, well, what am I going to have for dinner today? But my face looks like somebody just stepped on my foot and it's totally two different things. So do you feel like that's been something that you've been misunderstood for your whole life? Absolutely. Okay. That's interesting. And being the youngest, I'm sure people are ready to like give you some trouble for getting everything you wanted. Um, (laughs) Other siblings. pretty, Pretty much. So like I said, there's four girls, the oldest, which is my dad's daughter with his first marriage. Like we don't have a relationship at all. Never um, did or? Never did. And my mom's three girls with her first marriage. So my mom used to say that our her favorites were her oldest, her firstborn, and me, the last one. The two in the middle are, they're kind of okay. Like we have a great relationship with each of them. They're just individual. One of the middle ones is kind of like, you can kind of tell that she's had a hard time and why did our mom feel that way or whatever? Cause our mom has passed and um, my dad has also passed. So, so there's some resentment there, but no one knows how to discuss it. Cause right. the people that chose or favored you or the other sister right. can't answer right. certain questions. Right. right? Damn, like dynamics in the family are so wild. They'd last forever, even though it should happen when you're like five and right. you're like, and yeah, like, we're 45. Right. Leave it alone already. <laughs> Having Haitian immigrant parents, mm-hmm. did you feel like an outsider growing up among other students or people in, in, in your community? Like, did you ever feel outside or did you grow up with your community around you? Um, okay. So no, we really didn't grow up with our community around. I can remember as a little girl on the, in the neighborhood feeling a little bit like an out, outcast because I don't know if you know, but you know, some Haitians do practice voodoo and my mom used to. So like, you know, my mom would do things like have maybe celebrations or stuff like that. And, you know, I would get teased about it for a little while, but my true friends in the neighborhood never made me feel like an outcast. Can you tell me why you might have been teased for your mother's practice of voodoo? What people normally see, what society displays for voodoo is something bad. However, like everything in life, there's a good side and there's a bad side. If you don't understand something, if people don't understand something or people don't know something, they the easiest way out is to judge it and to, I guess, you know, look down at it and talk bad about it. But with knowledge becomes, there's a word that I'm looking for. Knowledge With knowledge comes power and understanding. So I guess because what people normally see, it's something bad. So... So if people were assuming your mom's a witch, I'm assuming mm-hmm. that's one of the words that mm-hmm. they're bringing up because <laughs> kids are dumb. Right, right. <laughs> and witches are great. So obviously mm-hmm. right. they're dumb. Right. <laughs> These kids, you know, you grew up with this other cultural mm-hmm. kind of practice right. of spirituality and magic mm-hmm. and also like Afro-liberation in this U.S. context. It's mm-hmm. like not in Haiti, right? right? So were you feeling like very connected to your Haitian identity through observing your mother's practice of voodoo? Like, did you learn patois? Did you speak to family and friends in your language? Like, how was that kind of identity formation for you? So 
I did learn how to speak Patois. I do speak it. And I thought what my mom did was fascinating. Mm-hmm. I don't practice it. Neither of my sisters do. I think me going away when I went, when I got incarcerated, my mom just stopped practicing. But I thought it was cool. And, you know, when we were home, we were home. And, you know, we were free to do whatever it was we wanted to do. You know, we spoke English at home. We spoke Patois at home. You know, there was there was really no judgment at home. There was a lot of support. Why did your mom stop when you went to... I believe she had a bad experience. She just stopped. Not so, connected to you going to prison? No, not connected to me. But it just so happened that way. And, you know, funny, I would ask her about it. Like, hey, mom, why did you stop? And she would always skirt around the subject. Wow. So she didn't want to talk about right. it. It was that traumatizing or right. messed up right. that she was like, I don't want to go there. Right. But like growing up, that wasn't like a religion for me mm-hmm. because I went, I was, I was baptized. I did my first communion. I did my confirmation. Like I went to Catholic school. So I went to Catholic church. So I also grew up in church. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't kind of like one in the same, like we believe in God, but it was just something that my mom did. Yeah. It's like you have different belief systems that are satisfying a different part of you. Right. They're not the same thing. Right. Like going to church is one face that she has and then doing voodoo is like connection right. to her culture in a right. different way. What was your kind of personality like when you were young? When I was younger, before I knew better, I was probably very a very happy child. But growing up and, you know, going to school, I believe that started to change because, you know, I got teased because when I was a little girl, I was fat. Mm-hmm. When I turned 12, it disappeared. And I had, you know, I had a really nice shape, but my parents were very strict and overprotective. So I wasn't allowed to go to a friend's house to have a sleepover or anything like that. And friends weren't allowed to come over either. Same for me. Um, <laughs> it's immigrant parents. Right. Because fears. my parents were like. Someone is going to hurt you. Right. Right. House, so. Right. And they didn't want it to be where if somebody came over, like the kid could go home and say, well, oh, somebody did this and somebody did that. So Absolutely. it was just a form of protection. And as a child growing up, I didn't understand that. I just looked at it as. Well, I don't have any friends and, you know, it's not allowing me to have any friends. You felt like an outcast. I did. Mm-hmm. I, I felt, as I got older, I felt more and more alone growing up. Music just took me away. Like I ended up spending a lot of time in my room. I became a loner. Like I spent a lot of time in my room now, but I became a loner. It was just being in my room gave me comfort. Like I had everything that I could possibly need in my room. So... I was all right there. Like I knew once I crossed that threshold that, you know, I was safe. Nothing was going to, you know, hurt me. And were you teased and was it ever physical, the bullying or anything? Did you ever experience physical harm? I did. Not because of that, you know, because of other things. So in high school, what I had started to do, you know, I, I became friends with somebody who was popular. And it just so happened that she was the school bully. And I thought that, wow, this person wants to be my friend. Like it makes me cool. And what high school were you? I went to, I went to Martin Van Buren high school. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Easy to feel like a small fish in a big pond in that campus. So what started to happen is that I started to do the same thing she was doing. Like she would cut classes. So I started cutting classes and just, you know, it, it just, spiraled. The snowball just came down really quickly. 
it came to a point where, um, you know, I used to drink, you know, hang out and when we cut classes and one particular day we had cut classes and we went back to school. She had gotten into a fight with two girls. Mm -hmm. She had gotten arrested, not that day, but several days later she got arrested. And when she got arrested, she said it wasn't her, it was me. She blamed you. She blamed me. So I ended up getting arrested. So I ended up going to the precinct and, um, you know, I told them it wasn't me. I had to go to court a couple of times. They ended up, you know, sealing the case or whatever. But because I didn't say, yeah, it was me. Hey, I did it. She jumped me twice and we fought. She sent a friend to come get me. And, you know, I didn't know I was home. The doorbell rang and I looked out and I was like, oh, hi, how are you? She was like, come to the store with me. And, you know, me like, oh, wow. Oh, my God. Somebody came to my house to see me. I went downstairs and my mom was in the basement. And I said, listen, I'm going to the store. She was she was like, who's at the bell? I said, oh, Bridget was at the, at the door. So I'm going to the store. She was like, okay. And so I get outside and we walk out the gate and we get to the corner, which is like, I don't know, 50 feet from the corner. We cross the street. Now, as we cross the street, it's the girl that I had a problem with and somebody else. It still didn't click though. Like, oh my God. Oh, I was like, oh, there goes so-and-so and so-and-so. So we're walking. So we get up half, halfway up the block and she comes around and it clicked like, you just, you stupid ass. And, um, total setup, total setup. I ended up fighting two girls instead of the three. The third girl was a Haitian girl that I knew. So the other two girls were not Haitian girls. No, one was um, white and the other one was Puerto Rican. Are you into books? Are you into studying? Like, are you into all that stuff or not really? No, when I was, no, when I was home and I was growing up, I really wasn't into books. I didn't get into books until I got incarcerated. Okay. Like, I ate books for a living. I read three to five books a week. Did you have any like partners or lovers or anything during that time? I did. Yeah. I did. And were those people like people that saw you? Did you feel like you were being understood and seen by them? You know, the last relationship that I was in, I was in for almost eight and a half years. I can't even begin to describe what the relationship was like, but I feel like the rela- the relationship was emotionally abusive. It was never physically abusive, but it was emotionally abusive. So I had been alone for about six years. I decided, you know what, I'm going to do the rest of the time by myself. I'm fine. I don't need any company or whatever. It was just too much drama, you know, because I felt like no one was sincere. In a setting like that, if you didn't live with your partner, people cheated. I think I, I, I hate a cheater. If you don't live with your partner, then it's a free for all. And it's, I don't, that's not something that I respect because if, mm-hmm. if I'm in a relationship with somebody, I'm in a relationship with someone that's just the bottom line. So like I said, I was with this person and at first, you know, she was trying to talk to me and I was just not interested. I really wasn't interested. And, um, She was like, you know, just give me a chance to make you happy. And she had said those words struck something with me because it didn't seem like, excuse me, anyone ever was concerned about my happiness. So I was like, well, you know what? Let me give her a chance. Mm -hmm. And I had low self-esteem and she built me up and I felt (laughs) towards the end she broke me again. Was that something that your family knew about you or were they, um, some, was it something it, you kept away? It was something that I kept away. When I first got in, I told my mom about it and she was like, oh, it's just a phase. You're going through a phase. <laughs> I was like, okay, whatever. And then I told her about my last relationship. She knew about my last relationship. 
you know, the person cheated on me. More than once. She said it was once, but I know it was more than once. And I just couldn't do it anymore. Being in your room right now, I just see so much of this inundation with scent. Mm -hmm. So obviously that's something that you always kind of had a fascination for too, right? So tell me about some of your childhood scent memories that make you think of growing up in um, New York. My dad was, I think, you know, was the most handsome man on the planet. And he used to go out every weekend and hang out with his friends. And, you know, he would get dressed, he would put on his cologne, and he just smelled absolutely delicious. So when my dad left, I used to go up to my parents' bedroom and just smell all his cologne because everything just smelled so good. So, and my mom, like, there's a picture of my mom over there. When my mom got She's dressed, a super sophisticated <laughs> <she> was- <laughs> lady. She's wearing this right, white suit right. and glasses and chic gold jewelry. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So when she got dressed. <laughs> Very chic. Because she, when she, and, and she loved to wear, you know, perfume and stuff like that, like white diamonds, that reminds me of her. Oh and it's just, you know, so I grew up with these scents, but these scents for me growing up was just comfort. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting emotional talking about that. Tell me why you're getting emotional thinking about it. Is it your mom and dad or? Like losing them and not having them right now? It's emotional because they're not here anymore. Like I've been home seven months and I just wish that they could be a part of me being home because I was gone for so long. And a lot of times I wish that I could turn back the hands of time. You feel regret for not being able to spend life with them? A lot. Well, I completely... I think that scent and the way that you come at kind of commemorate them here is like, you get to wear them a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, you said that one smells like your dad and this one reminds me of right. your mom, you know? So that's kind of <laughs> right. an amazing thing that I've found too, is like, it can take you to a great place or it can take you to a fucked up place right. and it, any, anything in between. Right. So you're feeling, you know, a lot because it's like these people made you mm-hmm. who you are. But then I think on some level for all of us, you know, when we don't, honor what we think they wanted for us or we think we fucked up or something that's connected to who we are which they're not even judging us for it's just judgment of the self this like emotion comes up i really appreciate you kind of sharing how their scent memory affected you and you hold and carry that too Mm -hmm. it sounds like you really adored them i did you were their baby of their family. I was. You were their love child, just the two of them. So right. would you say that they had a happy pairing and marriage or partnership um, or however they were together? Was it a good time? <clears throat> I believe that I believe that when my parents first met that things were great and they were happy. I believe that as time changed and things progressed and the bills piled up and, um, you know, maybe work wasn't available. I think it put a strain on the marriage. I think my mom practicing also put a strain on the marriage. I think he felt that, not that it wasn't real, but for the amount of work that my mom did with it, like she wasn't really getting anything in return. But like Mm -hmm. maybe a headache. Mm. I love to go reggae dancing. And this is in the 90s? or This is in the 90s. Oh, reggae was on fire. It was right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. 
absolutely. Like, it's not even the same. Right, right. It's not even. It's not even the same anymore. No, but no, no. you know, there's some things that they play now nowadays. That's like, oh, I like this. My mom never put a curfew on me or anything like that. But my mom really couldn't control me. Like, um, you know, she would threaten me and say things like, "Oh, if you don't come home, I'm going to tell your dad." And I was like, "Okay, whatever." The relationship that I had with my father, whatever I told my father, my father believed me. <laughs> so princess so, relationship. <laughs> so my mom would tell my dad, you know, she told him once, oh, you know, she didn't come home or whatever. And my dad would ask me about it. I'm like, listen, she didn't even come upstairs. She didn't call me to find out if I was upstairs. And my car was parked around the corner. Like she didn't. And he believed me. <laughs> her mom's like gaslit by her, <laughs> da- her 19 year old daughter. She's like, no, oh. I swear. <laughs> I did confess though after I got incarcerated. I did confess yeah. to my dad about it. So my mom said to me, you know, you're going to keep going out. You're not following my rules. Before the year is out, you're going to get married. And I'm like, what? Married? I'm just a kid. What are you talking about? So I stopped going out for a little while. I stopped going out because I'm like, I don't want to get in trouble. She's going to force this on me, whatever. And one day I happened to go down the block to my sister's house because my sister, my favorite sister lived down the block. So I went down the block and there was this guy outside my sister's house. And um, my cousin was there. My cousin introduced us. This guy wouldn't leave me alone. He was Hispanic. He was very fair skin. He had a little beard. He was kind of stocky. I mean, he was dressed nice, but I was dodging him because I kept remembering what my mom said. (laughs) As luck would have it, he asked me to marry him. And I said, yes. And he's like, come on, let's go out. Just give me a chance or whatever. I just want to hang out. So we went to the movies and we started hanging out and dating for like a month. And then at the end of the month, he asked me to marry him. And A month. A month. And stupid me. Well, I, said, I said yes. <laughs> stupid me. I said yes. But I felt like the reason why I, I wasn't in love with him. But you wanted your mom off your back but a bit? Or? I felt like if I got married... Maybe my mom would leave me alone. Like I would be an adult and I can do whatever I want to do. I felt like because I was damaged goods, no one else would ever want to marry me. Did you feel like you were damaged goods for any reason that had to do with what was going on at school? No, just because of choices that I made. So it sounds like you've had experiences that were kind of like violent or negative in some Mm -hmm. way before. How old were you when that happened? I was 16. 16? Mm -hmm. Was that something that your parents knew about or Um, from them? I didn't tell my parents about it until I was incarcerated. So who was the person when you were 16? A friend of mine. We were hanging out and I was like, wait a minute, stop. What are you doing? And And did you feel like your personality changed after that or? I feel like it did because I felt like I couldn't tell anybody. Did you think of yourself as having been raped? Yes. I had the same experience. I was wondering if that was it. I remember... I didn't tell anyone either, but I told my little sister who was 10 mm-hmm. and I was like, I think I was right. And mm-hmm. she's like, what does that mean? Right. She's like, no idea because you right. don't know who to right. talk about right. it with. Right. You know, you're, right. you have no one to confide right. in it. When you met this new guy, did you feel like attracted to him or was that part of you kind of shut off to people? I don't even know how to answer that. Like, I've, I felt he was attractive, but there wasn't, there really wasn't any, anything going on just yet. Like I felt, I felt like he had an ulterior motive. Like, why are you hounding me? Like, you're looking for me. You're coming to my job. Like, so it's like, well, what's going on? And it wasn't until I got to know him and saw him more that I guess I got more comfortable. And then, you know, it opened the door. So let's talk about when the door opened and you saw the parts of this person Mm -hmm. that 
probably never wanted to see. Right. (laughs) (laughs) What did he show you? Who was he when he wasn't? He showed me somebody that was, that was funny. Like he had a sense of humor. He was silly, but he seemed, he appeared to be very caring. He appeared to be very interested in me and my family. Like he just acted like somebody that gave a shit. Come to find out, I was just a pawn in his plan to rob my next door neighbor. We got married November 26, 1991. And so I stopped going to school and I stopped going to work because he didn't want me to. I was 19. He was 26. That was perfectly fine. He'd go out and come home drunk and whatever. Um, Like I said, he'd never put his hands on me or anything like that. But he had a way of talking that made you feel as big as an ant. Like he didn't yell because I don't like being yelled at. So he would, he wouldn't yell, but he just, he talked to me in a way that made me just want to just die, (laughs) just turn into an ant and die. Like just made me feel like shit. Did you think it was weird at the time or did anyone in your life think it was weird at the time that someone seven, eight years older than you would be wanting to marry a 19 year old girl? No. Yeah, so no one was questioning that because no. you were mature for your age right. and he was immature for his right. age. So you <laughs> right. in the middle. Right, like my mom, when I came home, when, you know, I came home the day and was like, Mommy, I'm getting married. And she was like, Oh my gosh, she started calling all her friends. She liked to let people know, like, Oh, my kids are doing great. My kids are doing this mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. So, this plot that he was kind of using you for, mm-hmm. did he tell you about the plot? No. The day that this nightmare happened. I was home. I remember being home and he went out. I don't know where he went. And his friend, the one that I had went out with before, she had two kids. She called me and she was like, listen, I'm coming to get you. We're going to take the kids to the movies. So I was like, okay, fine. Come get me. So as she pulled up, my mom wasn't home. My mom was coming home. So I was coming out as my mom was coming in. So my mother was like, where are you going? Where's your purse? Because I always went out with my purse. And so I'm going to the movies with Cheryl. I had, I said, I have money in my pocket. I took, I remember I took $40 out my, my purse and I left my purse, my driver's license. I left, I left everything at home. Um, so we went to her house and she said, you know, I just got to feed the kids. I want to feed them before we go. The music video, Do You Remember the Time by Michael Jackson was playing on Channel 5 that night. Never forget that. Never. I'll never forget it because I happen to be engrossed in it because I used to love Michael Jackson. Oh my God, that video is Mom, amazing. Eddie right. Murphy, amazing. And he's singing all these right. weird sounds. Right. Amazing. It's amazing. So I was sitting there watching it and then um, my ex-husband shows up and um, he's like, come on, let's go. We're going home. And I'm like, no, I'm going to the movies with her and our kids. And he's like, no, we're going home. So I got up, I grabbed my stuff and I was like, listen, I'm going home. I can't go. So we get out and he said, we're going in that car. And it was a green car. So I sit in the back. He sits in the front. I sit in the back and he said, um, all right, so take us home. He never introduced me to the two people that were in the car. So they drove us home, but he was like, drop us off here. So going to my house, there was the, the Long Island Railroad. So we had to walk under the trestle. So we get to the corner. We're going to cross the street and I get in front of the house and we're going in. He was like, no, we need to use, I need to use the phone. So I'm like, what do you mean? You need to use the phone. What's going on? Because my mom's phone, there was a problem with my mom's phone. We could receive calls, but we couldn't make calls going out. Like they had cut it, cut the phone 
partway. He was like, let's go next door to use the phone. So not thinking anything because I knew the neighbors. I went, I rang the doorbell and um, Tawana came to the window and I was like, go get your mom for me. So she went to get her mother. The mother comes. I'm like, listen, let me use your phone. I got to make a call. So she lets me in and he comes in behind me. So when you come in through the back door, there's like a kitchen. So at the kitchen wall, before you go into the dining room, there was a phone hanging on the wall. So I pick up the phone. Um, He was like, you know, let her know that we got home. Okay. Okay. No problem. So I'm dialing the girl's number. But before she could answer, I heard him say, hang up the fucking phone. So before I'm not even turning around. So I'm like, wait a minute, you asked me to call. And he had a gun out at the lady's head. And then one of the guys ended up coming through the back door. He was like, go upstairs, go see who's upstairs. So I went up the steps. I didn't go all the way up the steps. I stayed in the middle of the first staircase. And I started to turn around and just say, I don't know who's up there or whatever. But the other guy came with the gun pointed at me. And he was like, who's upstairs? I said, I don't know. I never made it upstairs. So I go back downstairs. My ex-husband is, is there with the lady of the house. And then the other guy comes down with her three daughters. So he takes me upstairs with the mother and he's asking her, where's the money? So we go in one room and you know, he's like, you know, look for the money. And But this room, when we went into this room, the room looked like a tornado hit it. Like it was just in such disarray. So um, there was like, I remember there was a shoe box in front of me and I picked it up and I picked up one shoe that was in the box and there was a $50 bill in there and I took it and I threw it at him. He's like, go look in the other room. So I went into the kid's room and I sat on the bed. When I heard him coming, I got up and I looked in the drawer. He was like, go downstairs. So I went downstairs. He told the guy to give me the gun so I can watch the kids. So I'm in the basement. I'm standing in the doorway of the bathroom and I have a gun, but I have the gun behind my back so they don't see it. Her oldest said, "Um, Claudia, what's going on? I said, you know, I don't know. I don't have anything to do with this. (sighs) Then my ex-husband came downstairs and he was like, all right, let's go. Come on, you guys go upstairs. So they went upstairs and he followed behind them to the second floor. I never made it up to the second floor. I was on the first floor. All I heard was gunshots. They came running downstairs. They grabbed me with them. Took me in the car. So the other guy was there. The driver, the one that you know had driven us to another train tracks. And he was like, just drive. Um, that was the last time I was ever home. This happened on February 2nd, 1992. And I got arrested February 8th, 1992, a week later. I was so relieved when the cops came. I felt like, okay, I'm going to tell them what happened. I'm going to be able to go. And that's not what happened. The cops did believe that I had nothing to do with it. And they knew that, you know, I wasn't the one that did the shootings because there are two survivors. And they did say that I wasn't the one that did it, but I was there. And how many people were murdered that day? Two. Who was murdered? The two youngest. I knew them. I watched them, you know. I watched them on two occasions. So what did that do to your community? What did this crime do to your community? It rocked the community because I lived in Hollis, Queens, and it was a quiet little neighborhood, and 
you know, I remember watching the news and people were like, oh my God, I would have never thought she would have done something like that. Was your face in the news? Yes. Because they didn't have any pictures of my ex-husband. So you were the face of this crime? Right. How did that feel? Horrible. It was horrible. Because I wanted people to know that, you know, that's, it wasn't me. But, you know, like I said, I was gone for 25 years. And, you know, the first few years was really, really, really hard. Um, In what way? Because the newspapers put... A version. If anybody knows me, I love kids. I would never have done anything like that. How does that make you feel to be like branded like a person who has done that? It to made a child? me feel like crap. Like yeah. I had no voice. I felt like a mute because it was like you know whatever I said felt on deaf ears. And it's like, listen, guys, you have to listen. Like you know, people that knew me knew that I would never do something like that. But other people, like you know, in prison, I was. People call me baby killer and that hurt. Even some officers treated me like crap because of it. And, you know, my they made my family suffer because of it. Like, you know, they made them wait to see me and it was really bad. And things didn't start to change, especially with the officers until, excuse me, I had been there for a while. And they saw the interaction with me and my family and they started to talk to my family and they start, they watched me, like they got to know me. So they knew like, she's a sweetheart. Right. My ex-husband is still incarcerated. For this crime? Yes. In In a feeble attempt to get me out, he pled guilty to everything. He didn't go to trial. He got 126 years. The other guy, the shooter, got 79 to life. And the driver got four and a half years. I think he did nine years total. Everyone was in their 20s except you at this point. So you really became the fall woman of this crime just because you were downstairs, you had the gun, the way the story was told. And the way you're telling me now, it sounds like everyone who doesn't know you Mm -hmm. is assuming that you led them to this house and you were part of the mastermind of this crime. Right. Right. So- you know, that's got to scar you in terms Mm -hmm. of trust and stuff in your life, you know? So you're getting to prison, you're not being treated well. How did it feel to know that you had like 20, 25 years ahead of you to, to serve time? I mean, that's the part that I think is daunting to people on the outside to imagine. So you can only imagine that when you're actually facing it. So I was 20 when I got sentenced. I was 19 when I got arrested. I was 20 when I got sentenced and went upstate. I turned 21 in 93. For me, I had, stupid me, I still had hope in the justice system. So it wasn't until I lost my very last appeal that it was like, shit, I'm really going to be here for 25 years. Like, So you've served your full sentence. I did 25 years. For a crime that you right. did not plan and right. you did not do the things that they said you did. Right. So knowing that, knowing by year five, year 10, year 15, year 20, that you're not going to get out earlier or you're not going to get out on good behavior, what did that compel you to do in prison? I did everything that I was mandated to do within my first five years because I felt like if the courts were going to look, inquire about me, if they're going to let me go, I didn't have any violent infractions. In my 25 years, I think I had four infractions um, for minor things. My first... I'm going to say my 10, my first 10 years, I slept. 
aside from doing what I needed to do, I slept time away because time went by that way. I went to program from eight to 11, came back for count. I took a nap for count, went back to program from one to three thirty. I came back and probably ate, read, read a little bit and went to sleep. So I know I slept more than eight hours in an average day. The weekends I'd spend it sleeping and reading. But once I got over the hump, like, you know what? You have to make the best of this. I met Nikki on Rikers Island. I made friends with people like Nikki. Like I've been friends with Nikki for like 25 years. I have another friend that I've been friends with for about that time. And we haven't seen each other in a long time. I have another friend we've been friends for 15 years. But they're people that weren't popular, that, you know, didn't stand out in a crowd. But they also, and why I gave them a chance and, and, you know, embraced them in sisterhood and a part of my family is that they looked past my mask and understood me. 